we'll make this one uh, uh, kind of short and sweet, and then I'll try to have you. Um, I'll have another conversation in the future, and we'll we'll expand sure. it. Because um, I, I just wanted to talk with you a little bit about the Sethite theory, what we, what we learned down here in the Bible Belt. Thinking anything on Genesis 6 other than Sethite is uh, akin to blasphemy <laughs> and, and heresy and, and things like yeah. that. But, you know, but there's, um, but there's issues with the various views. Even the Sethite view has issues. Um, and, and, and quite frankly, the fallen angel view, there's holes there. Tell me a little bit, if you can summarize uh, or give a Cliff Notes version of what the Sethite theory is and why you believe that's wrong. Sure. It's actually a fairly large argument. So I think uh, the first thing is whenever I do any research, I like to use a number of different Bibles. And I also like to take things back to Hebrew and then Greek in the New Testament to, to make sure that I've got a full understanding of what uh, the arguments are and what the translations are actually trying to tell me. So mm-hmm. that's the first basis where I go to. And I'm very, very respectful of everybody else's perspective, but I come down on the supernatural side that they weren't, the sons of God were not the sons of Sethites or any other humans, uh, that they were actually the sons of God. And when I take that back to Hebrew, it's, it's Ben Ha Elohim. Yeah. And that is the sons of God. And it does, doesn't have anything to do with the Sethites. And then I also look for further definition in the Bible as to where else I could support that. And I would also look at other arguments in the Bible that would people would utilize to say that these were human Sethites or, or otherwise. So the first thing I, w- I went to when I looked trying to figure out, is this a supernatural event, is that I went back to the to the King James version where it says giants and then took that back to Hebrew and with the Hebrew took that back to uh, giants as Nephilim and then uh, the Nephilim are understood as giants so that was the first sort of big thing that the Nephilim were giants but that doesn't explain who the sons of God were so I went to Job uh, the book of Job in that and if you look at Job 1 6 or Job 2.1, or Job 38.4-7. It's either going to show them as angels, and if it is showing them as angels, then it will have an annotation saying that's the sons of God, mm-hmm. and vice versa, it will just say that they are the sons of God. And these are the beings that were created, you know, as the morning stars and everything that Job talks about. So mm-hmm. I think very, very clearly, if we look at an old... Testament application, we see that the sons of God are the same as the sons of God that are used in Genesis 6, and that explains the supernatural flavor as to how you could get giants being created. And certainly you couldn't get giants being created from ordinary Sethites, unless you think the Sethites and the Adamites, which is another sort of rabbit hole to go down to, which I don't buy into, that all of the Adamites were giants. Ah, uh, see. And but that's a whole different argument, and that's not where I'm coming from. And I, I actually look at the Sethites as being, you know, true humans, as opposed to being corrupted with the uh, Nephilim. And right. when I look at other sources, if I look at people like Josephus, who wrote the Jewish history for the Romans at the time of the sacking of Judea and Jerusalem, he understood them as giants in in Genesis 6, and that it was the fallen angels that went and procreated these. And he cited 
everybody in antiquity that were historians that have the same account in other cultures because this is the same story told over and over and over and over and over in all five continents around the world, all other religions, all other mythologies, and it's just told from a polytheist perspective as opposed to a monotheist. But Josephus is, he was a priest of the temple, and so his credibility, I think, in terms of how the ancients understood this uh, is is important. Yeah. And you, know, you can look at other, you know, like Jewish uh, le- legends like Louis Ginsburg recorded, uh, and, and he's a very, very famous author of the Jewish legends, and he did several books on them, uh, oh, say about 100 years or so ago. He recorded them as all as sons of God and of giants as well. And so when I hear an argument that comes up and says, okay, but they, that doesn't mean that they were angels because we have this term, the sons of God in the New Testament. And if you look at it from that perspective, then we're getting an argument from the New Covenant where Christians are being grafted into the New Covenant as, as sons of God. Uh, the difficulty mm-hmm. with that was when you get into it is there are many, many other passages that will talk about this adoption process. And they're adopted as joint heirs into the new covenant as, you know, Acts will talk about. Well, and also in Romans it will talk about those, you know, led by the Spirit are adopted as the sons of God. But as you dig further into it, if you understand that this is an adoption process, and then also understand that there's a clarification as you get into Galatians where, you know, we are adopted with the right to be sons of God and joint heirs. And then it goes on further when we get into Hebrews 12.7, for example, it says God treats us as sons of God even though we have human fathers. So these are different right. terms that are being used in Genesis, which were the sons of God with an Old Testament argument. You'd have to go to Job and understand it that way, and then to create these supernatural beings. Right. And there are more verses that you could utilize in the New Testament, but it all goes to that sort of adoption uh, process. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there's also a few verses in the Old Testament where it talks about the children of God, as within the Israel account. But those two quotes, whether it's in Hosea or Isaiah, one is the children of God and one are the sons of daughter of God, as Isaiah talks about it, mm-hmm. those are prophecies. So that's talking about a future time, right, of the sons right. of God. Right, right, right. So the only ones that seem to relate perfectly with Genesis seems to be the Job perspective to define it within the Bible. Right. I'm just going to go back and sort of underline the argument that I don't understand how humans copulating with other humans could create giants any other way. Well, I want to believe the Sethite, but I've always had an issue with that. And of course, you know, we get that from the lineage in Luke 3.38, when from Enosh and Seth and Adam, who was the son of God. Um, and then, of course... Yeah. You know, Matthew, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. But they're, they're called sons of God. Um, Galatians 3.26, that you're, you're sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Um, the, the issue that I've always had is because of Job. They can be sons of God there, but no, they can't be sons of God in Genesis 6. The other thing that always bothered me uh, was I could not get a clear answer from from my pastor, and he knows that I'm talking to you, uh, and, and, uh, that you would be, uh, on our podcast. Um, the issue that I always had was that little blurb 
that Moses was perfect in his generations. Why would the Lord allow through the Holy Spirit that to be added into Scripture if it didn't have a meaning? He was perfect in his generations, that that was why he was saved through the flood. Does that make sense, what I'm saying there? It makes perfect sense, and I'm firmly in line that uh, Noah would have been pure in his bloodlines without any uh, Nephilim or other types of corruptions that were going on in the antediluvian world. And when the Bible says the whole earth was corrupted, I think right. that meant even humans, right? right. And mm-hmm. a, again, we can go into that in, in detail, but it's, it's almost like a show in itself in terms of all the different things that were going on in the antediluvian world. But I do believe the whole world was corrupted, and that included the plants and the animals and so many of the humans because they started to cross marriage in other sources, not biblically, in about the uh, sixth generation or the seventh generation. And that's how the Sethites become totally corrupted, not only spiritually, but also physically through intermarriage. There's a period of time up for about six generations uh, where the Sethites are pure and do not intermarry with the, the Canaanites. But after okay, that, that's where they get, that's where they become corrupted within the bloodlines. And that's why Noah is selected as being pure of stock as well as spirit to I repopulate see. the earth. And therefore, the descendancy down to Moses is, is that same sort of lineage, right? Because this, this, this lineage needs to be pure to produce the Messiah several thousand years thereafter. Well, what about Acts 17.26, where that he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And now, is that one blood? So that would either have to mean that, okay, we have from one blood, which would be Adam, or there's blood that it can't be corrupted. What is your feelings on Acts 17.26? Yeah, I think, and I, I've heard that argument come up a few times in terms of using that. But again, when you when you break that, that verse down, and I'm just trying to see whether I can get that up in front of me, uh, you can relay that argument back and say, wait a minute, there's a few more things going on in in Acts than what uh, most people think that is going on there. So this is when Paul is at Mars Hill, tells them that they're too yeah. superstitious, yeah. or he passed by the, the altar of the, to the unknown God. Yeah, so the big question gets to be in terms of, you know, what are they getting at in terms of saying, you know, um, hath God made one blood of all nations of all men to dwell on the face of the earth? And, you know, we do know that, uh, that the, uh, that, you know, the life is in the blood, okay? So, and we also know that when we look at, um, Adam or the people of day six, it goes back to the word Adam. So that, that is one blood, right? Right. So I think that's why you have the genealogies that are, being tracked in in the Old Testament, and only all of the ones of the Sethites that go through to the uh, the time of Noah, and then are going to repopulate the whole earth, right? right. So that's the one blood of all nations that I think go back to to Adam and to Noah as as you get across the flood. Right. Um, but I don't believe what that talks about is is that. Uh, a contamination of, of the bloodlines and what happens through through intermarriage. I think there's, uh, and just as we find, you know, learn in Genesis 6, you have uh, an understanding that the Nephilim were both before and after the flood. Correct. We're not told how, right? Right. Just that they are. Uh, we also understand that after the flood, you have some very interesting things that are going on. 
you have all of these nations that are in uh, the Old Testament that do not go back to the table of nations in First Chronicles or in uh, Genesis. The Rephaites or the Rephaim, as I like to to uh, take it back, because Eim stands for ones, and it's it's part of the Nephilim bloodline, right? Or the Anakim or the Avim, and all these other names of giants that are used in the Old Testament. None of them go back to uh, the table of nations, and we have uh, people like Japheth son of Noah going off and, you know, moving into, let's say, northwest Turkey as as you follow where their their peoples went. And you have these interesting names like Gog and Magog as example. And they intermarry into these giants because those are giant names, whether it's in Greek mythology or English mythology, Gog and Magog. And what is very typical of what happens at the time of the early uh, forming of the nations after the flood is that many of the names of the descendants recorded in the genealogies of the Table of Nations is they take on the names of the giants, in this case, Gog and Magog. And so we have sort of a corrupting of those bloodlines at that early point, just as if you look at all of these other hybrid nations that are being formed in the land of the covenant. You have uh, the, you know, the Amorites, and you have uh, all of the different names that are used for these nations that are intermixing in Canaan, and you have these hybrids being formed with all of these descendants that are named in the table of nations of, of Canaan, whether or not they're the Hittites or they're the Hivites. These were all either hybrid nations or um, pure Nephilim ones, but I think the ones in Canaan, those were intermarriage again. And just as you have in the descendants of Esau going into the chiefs of Edom, Seir comes out of nowhere, and he is a Hivite. And so he intermarries Esau, Eliphaz, uh, intermarry into these chiefs of Edom, and in the third generation there you get Amalek, who the Amalekites are said to take their name from, but Amalek, I will trace back in my book to being a name of a giant before the flood. And the Amalekites are very, very mysterious people because they seem to be an antediluvian people, and again, I'll make that case in, in the book. So again, what, what I'm okay. saying is, is he was taking the name of the giants. And so when we talk about bringing this sort of back to full circle, we're talking about, you know, blood of all nations, but this bloodline is continually being corrupted. But there is one bloodline of humans that were originally created, no doubt about that. Okay, yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. When we look at where demons come from, the one-off answer is, well, they're fallen angels. I'm having a hard time buying that (laughs) simply because I'm of the feeling that demons are a result of the whatever occurred, those men of renown or whatever they were that are then disembodied because they're always seeking to go to inhabit a body. Because I bring up the demoniac of the Gadarenes uh, legion that was cast out where they wanted to go into the pigs. You have, you know, Jesus speaking about that uh, someone having demons cast out, but uh, if the Holy Spirit doesn't come in, that they're going to be worse off than they were before. Yeah. So they're disembodied. And an angel obviously can be a body. You know, you take the example of the ones that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So we're taught that demons and fallen angels are one and the same. And I just I don't yeah. see how that lines up. No, I, I, I certainly don't either. And I just 
and remember, I'm going to answer that in a second. I just wanted to go back to that all nations and one blood of Acts. And mm-hmm. if you take, um, you know, one blood back to the Greek, that's really applied to the Greek word ethnos. And that's a species or a specific race as one tribe. And I would take that as a better understanding to define what I was talking about with just taking that back to Adam and, and the humans created, right? Yes, sir. Okay, so I've forgotten to get that out in my, <laughs> in my rambling there. And the demons, you are correct in my opinion, uh, and I know there's a difference of opinion on there, but demons are not fallen angels. Again, we don't get this out of, out of the Bible, except that we get a distinction shown in the Bible, where you have angels that are speaking of as angels, right? And Satan, right. who is an angel, isn't spoken of as a demon. He's, a, he's called right. a number of things. And any of the fallen angels don't seem to be named as demons, but yet Jesus is dealing with demons with Legion being the most famous one um, that are afraid that he's going to send them to judgment or to the abyss before their time, right? For, and they correct. go into the pigs and run over over the cliff. So we have this distinction. Now, not from a scriptural perspective, but one that runs reasonably close and the closest to scripture of most of the apocryphal books, and I'm going to refer to the first book of Enoch. It talks about the spirits of the original Nephilim that were created immortal, and it's important understand that, and that's that supernatural thing that we're talking about, is somehow this immortal, counterfeit, reprobate spirit gets passed on to these giants, the Nephilim. Mm. And that's an immortal spirit. And this is setting up a heavenly spirit in the physical realm, from the spiritual realm. And it's a violation against creation. It's a counterfeit spirit, right? Right. So what happens is God recognizes this, um, and he obviously knew it was going to happen because he knows everything from beginning to the end. And so this is all playing out. And he institutes also in Genesis 6 that all life will be restricted to 120 years. This is specifically designed against this reprobate spirit going into the Nephilim. So their spirits are still immortal in the first generation, but not their bodies. So their bodies will eventually die, but their spirits don't, and they're also not permitted to go to heaven. Right. So these are the ghosts, these are the demons, these are the bodiless spirits of the original Nephilim that are demons. And how you bring that together sort of scripturally is that we have this place called the abyss that these demons of legion are being afraid of being sent to. And in the abyss are the most awful of the demons of the Nephilim of the antediluvian world that usurped the world and created these tyrannical kingships to enslave humankind. But you also have the impassioned fallen angels that were put into the abyss. And these are the ones that are going to be released in Revelation 9. And those are the ones that were bound. Yeah. That's the second Peter. Uh, isn't that right? Yes. Second Peter? Yep. And also in Revelation 9, we see these scorpion beasts coming up out of the abyss, right? Right. Abaddon, yeah. Abaddon and Apollyon, yes. Who I think is Azazel or Azaziel, which is the scapegoat uh, that was talked about on the second goat of atonement uh, in the Old Testament rituals. And uh, so it's either going to be translated as scapegoat or if it's translated that way, it'll say Azazel. And he was the chief of these fallen angels of the seraphim, which was a specific order that copulated with the, the daughters of humans at that time. And Azazel was the leader of the watchers, and he's, so he's the scapegoat. That sort of answers that second goat of Azazel uh, at the Day of Atonement as to why they would need to sacrifice two goats there. So in the abyss that were locked up at the time of the flood, you have the worst of the demons, and you have the, the impassioned fallen angels. But you still have fallen angels around in the world, and you still have 
have demons that weren't locked up, that are still working evil in causing deceit in the world today. But understand that they're two distinct beings. Yeah. One of the things that um, always intrigued me, too, as well, is when Jesus was in the tomb for three days that and when it said that he spoke to the spirits in prison that is who he was speaking to when he spoke to uh, where they said have you come to torment us before our time they knew where they're appointed to go yes they know about the abyss <laughs> they know about the abyss and they don't want to go there yeah and, and they know about the judgment so when it speaks of jesus uh, preaching to those spirits in prison well this yeah. is when he's in the tomb yeah this is a, during those three days yeah. are you of the opinion that he was speaking to those demonic spirits absolutely and i'll cover that in my book and so you're referring to second peter 2 4 mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's the angels who sinned and when in the days of noah that were locked away in the in the dungeon yeah and uh, those are the spirits that jesus went to speak to and basically said your rebellion and your attempt to obliterate humankind is over and i'm here to tell you that personally and that when i rise then the thing you did not anticipate which is the resurrection will elevate humankind just as God had foretold uh, humans above angels, which is why this whole Nephilim concept and this whole thing going on in Genesis 6 is intricately interwoven with the angelic rebellion. Yes, okay. Well, um, and and I want to do this again and have you back on for a follow-up call, if that's okay with you. Yep. Uh, but you covered the Sethite theory, and yep. I don't want to get too deep in anything else because my wife's going to get me because i got to get home Yeah. No get problem. to church. Well, <laughs> you know, one thing to get out when we talk about again is how Jude 1-6 connects to uh, Genesis 6. Yes. And also people will bring up Matthew 22-30 and say there's no marriage in heaven, so how could this happen in um, Genesis 6? And we can cover that off as well. Yeah, because those are angels in heaven, and he was very specific about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. We can cover that, and that's a, that's a fairly easy argument, but most people do like to have an answer for that. And Certainly. We can also reference uh, Genesis 3.15 as well to tie things together, because Genesis 3.15, that's where God puts enmity between the, the woman and the offspring of the serpent, and that gets into the seraphim angels that we were talking about earlier, is that specific order? They're the seraphs, so the seraphim of, of Isaiah 6. And right. we can tie all of that together when we get into the into the into, into the larger show. All right, well, we'll do that. Well, then I can also bring in uh, things about how this tells the same story in all other religions and, and uh, mythologies around the world. Well, that's what I want to do. I wanted to get the, the Sethite theory yeah, and the yep. fact that there's more to the story. You need to uh, dig a little deeper because there's a reason that Jude quoted Enoch. You know, nothing is, is accidental or incidental in the Bible. Every word is pure. So there's a reason he quoted that. And what my yep. friends are really interested in is what is the plot of just about every superhero movie in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, it is a it's a Gnostic gospel, and all the movies that have to do with giants, uh, there's connections there, and you can find symbolism there with that. Yeah, and in the definition of hero, it's also one of the reasons why I go back to Hebrew, because typically King James Version just says men of renown and uh, mighty ones, right? But other translations use heroes of old. 
And again, it's all the same meaning. But when you get into what the ancients understood a hero was, or a mighty one was, one is Gibberim, which is uh, a a good conversation in itself. Um, And the second one is that hero, whether or not it's in the Greek classics or wherever, it was understood as a demigod in the ancient world. Exactly. To me, I'm thinking, look, you're talking about Genesis 6. Yes. That is the men of renown, because the way I describe it, my South Arkansas mind, is it's hard to have an original thought. So Mm -hmm. when you look, these stories that have survived for thousands of years, there is a reason that these cultures join together part immortal with mortal. And that coming together is is demigods. Yeah. I like to use the Superman uh, analogy of modern time. And so in Superman, he comes from the house of El. El is an angel. El is a fallen angel, right? And of course, he's also a Messiah-like figure because he's a son of El, right? That's right. Yep. Uh, So that's an Antichrist-type figure as a Superman. But then look at the imagery on it. Always look into the iconology and the imagery and the pictures. So Superman has on his chest what? He has a a triangle that's inverted. So that's a pyramid, right? right? Right. And you've got the yellow in the background, which is the enlightenment of mysticism, which is closely associated with the rise of Nephilim and the descendants of Cain and Enoch the evil, son of Cain, and how secret societies get going. And Mm -hmm. then you have the red S that looks like a snake, right? The red serpent or the red dragon, which is Satan. And you have all of this in your face as a superhero or a demigod. That's exactly right, especially the latest version of the Superman where they told some of the backstory when he was a baby. Uh, yeah. And that's where he pulls his shirt back and shows the S. Yes. You know, he doesn't say, hey, this is S for Superman. He says, this is the symbol for the house of L. And I'm thinking, yes. you just said, this is a symbol for the house of God. Yep. <laughs> and, yep. Well, and, and also, it's a double entendre because, sorry to interrupt, uh, I just wanted to, to get that this in is, is that L is also the head of the pantheon of Canaan. So you have L, and then you have Baal, and then you have Molech. That's the three mm-hmm. in, in, in how they have the genealogy of those gods. So L can also mean fallen angel, right? Right, that's right. Benai El Ohim. Yep. As, as L, it's a generic name for a god or a fallen angel or an angel. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I'd like to get into pop culture a little bit with you because I think that would resonate more with yep. my audience. Because it's the retelling of the same story over and over. It's a Gnostic yep. gospel or it's it's a fallen angel being the savior of the world. Yep. I'm quite certain you've done this before. Hit it with pop culture first yep. and then go back and say, look, in antiquity, this same plot goes all the way back to Genesis 6, my friends want to hear more of what I know about it. And after listening to you with Gons and Basil, I knew I couldn't scratch the surface as to what you know, obviously, with your research. I just know enough yep. to be dangerous. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so I would like to have um, have you come on talk again, hit it from pop culture and go back towards Genesis 6. Yeah. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, we can. We can cover, you know, any anywhere that you want. And if you want to really get into the what Gnosticism is. Mm-hmm. I can cover all of that as well. Oh, definitely. Um, so. Definitely. Well, I better go for tonight. I appreciate it, Gary, and have a good night, buddy. And I'll be in contact soon. Thank you. All right, thanks. Thanks.